listener. Thank you for making your way to the Kind Mind Podcast. If this content makes a positive difference in your life, it would make a positive difference for me. If you support in any way you can, then I would be able to share more ideas with you, more episodes with you, because it takes time and money and other resources to put the production together. There is a Patreon link in the description where you can pitch in as little as $5 per month. And if that's not feasible, you can simply share this episode or any other with a friend. That helps too. And the music in the body of this episode is by artist Lee Hanna. And the album is called Cultivate. You can find this in the description also. A lot of the tracks in previous episodes are from the artist Bing Satellites. So if you're interested... Both of these artists can be found on Bandcamp, where I would encourage you to buy their music. This episode was recorded just last month at the Kind Mind Gathering. You are invited to our meetings when they happen in person on the last Wednesday of the month at the Homestead 1854 in Plano, Illinois. Or you can join virtually as a Patreon member. All the Zoom details are shared in advance. I was inspired to do this one next because we're in the middle of an explosion of AI interfaces and the questions I've been getting about AI art uh, and in cases like the, the selfie art that was ubiquitous on social media for 15 minutes and the rate of change can make it a confusing time, definitely for young people who are constantly hearing how more jobs are going to disappear or their dream job might not even exist in the future. So I was thinking, how does this impact their motivation or sense of purpose? Jobs and social roles are not static, but the transitions were not always so abrupt. I think of the storyteller, how this occupation was once essential for society to maintain cultural wisdom, but since faded with inventions like the printing press to the internet, So how are teachers in the future supposed to educate children? And what will be essential for the training of the next generation as AI and the information age develop further? Another spark for this talk was the new application from OpenAI called ChatGPT, which is kind of like a magic eight ball on steroids. If you want to see what I mean, you can create a free account and start a conversation with it about anything at, uh, I think it's openai.com. And if you don't want to, that's cool, but you're probably going to have trouble avoiding it very soon. I do think this is the beginning of another rapid mass scale transformation of productivity and economic coordination and disruption, probably on par with the internet itself. So first, let's try to have a simple understanding of what artificial intelligence is. Computer programs are designed with algorithms or mathematical formulas that learn from and analyze vast amounts of data, thereby performing fast pattern recognition, what we're typically encountering. It's also known as narrow AI. But this is sometimes conflated with sentient machines. But that term applies to a synthetic way of developing artificial intelligence with self-awareness or the ability to feel and a capacity for suffering, which does not currently exist as far as I know. So in between would be AGI or artificial general 
intelligence before superintelligence is a kind of system that could be more multifaceted in its learning and purpose and performing a variety of complex intellectual tasks. Sometimes I'm inclined to call artificial intelligence, at least in its current manifestation, a misnomer. AI can be misleading because intelligence, the word intelligence, often implies the capability of independent thought, cognition, when in reality they are designed and programmed by humans to perform specific tasks. We really haven't even historically thought of plants as intelligent. Yet in the research of scientists like Monica Gagliano, new evidence suggests that they learn, form memories, and solve problems. So while these technologies can perform a range of tasks that were once considered exclusive to human intelligence, such as image and speech recognition, natural language processing, and decision-making, the programs are still limited in many ways, particularly when it comes to qualities like intuition, empathy, creativity, and deeper understanding of the complexities of emotional and social contexts. One of the main obstacles to building a conscious AI would lie in determining what consciousness actually is. So I think we're far away, if it's even possible, to build sentience artificially. We aren't close to solving the hard problem of consciousness. If we assume that consciousness emerges from the brain, well, we know more and more about how the brain functions and are mapping the corresponding patterns of activity in the brain for experiences like taste or color and so on. But why or how there is a subjective experience at all is still unexplained. And that's the trouble with qualia. I think the claims of the AI chat box generating messages that it wants to be alive or that it wants to be free are bullshit. Or if anything, there are additional algorithms that generate such statements like a casino slot machine on rare occasion for media hype uh, to get more users to try it out. There's a wide gap, though, between generating statements that sound thoughtful and actual conscious experience. Since overall, modern society lacks an integrated contemplative dimension, I think there's a there's misunderstanding on this issue. Constructing toy animals that move and look more and more like real animals is in no way bringing them closer to becoming an animal that's alive. Similarly, Developing algorithms that are more and more complex is not going to spontaneously birth consciousness. If it does, I believe that would be an accident. But it'd be cool if that finally proved that consciousness isn't um, tied to a brain. People think about the issue this way because they don't understand consciousness in the first place and lack practice of meta-attention. If you've seen the Walking Dead AMC TV show, it's titled as such precisely because the zombies are not conscious. They're animated, yes, but if anything, you would say they you could say they're a biological example 
of narrow intelligence. They're just running on a program of feeding on the living. So artificial intelligence, at least as it's deployed today, should not be mistaken for consciousness. Now, as it is, the current innovations are marvels of engineering and can do things humans could never be able to due to our temporal and spatial constraints. The goal for these programs is not human intelligence because any one of our functions is very limited. Human intelligence is not necessarily superior at anything. Not sensing, not memory, not movement. But we humans can do so many things and probably many more yet to be fully discovered and documented. Our language wasn't always our capability. It required the right conditions and still still does. So imagine what other possibilities remain for the, the large amount of brain processing that we have yet to use when the conditions are such that it can manifest. We probably have many uh, latent gifts. And all this is to say how special consciousness is, or our consciousness. So while computers can dominate in specific tasks like math, chess, navigation, and information processing, which will all unequivocally reshape the structure of the world economy and our places in it, with mixed consequences, of course. But humans are able to integrate visual, auditory, musical, natural, kinesthetic, and emotional intelligences to create and interact with the world. And I think it's important to differentiate this word create from generate. Chat GPT generates responses based on language and therefore simulates quite well what an intelligent person of that area of knowledge or experience could say when it's asked a question. The answers have the feel of something original, but it's based entirely on published data. So this is not cognition per se. I think if we're honest with ourselves, the public's thrill with the AI selfies is not in the originality. Imagine taking just one of the generated AI images that look like a classic portrait painting and sharing it on your profile two years ago. People might like and comment, that's cool, or nice painting of you. Today, it's that it can generate a variety of artistic selfies in a moment. So while each is distinct, stylistically, it's what we could already conceive of. So it really has more to do with efficiency and productivity than creativity. But there's still something else missing from this creative equation. Often what we truly extol as original is rooted in failure. If the AI art could have been developed and introduced in the 1800s before 1874 specifically, then it could not generate impressionist art like Monet. Because his painting, titled Impression Sunrise, for instance, uh, would not yet be imported into the data set. And also that painting was quote-unquote wrong. 
according to academic painting, up until that time. So it's the falling short of what his predecessors were aiming for in terms of accuracy, aka the totality of that art database, that helped spawn the entire Impressionistic movement. To put this more eloquently in musical terms, here's a quote from Brian Eno, legendary record producer of groups like Talking Heads, U2, Coldplay, and many others, but the quote is this. Whatever you now find weird, ugly, uncomfortable, and nasty about a new medium will surely become its signature. CD distortion, the jitteriness of digital video, the crap sound of 8-bit, all of these will be cherished and emulated as soon as they can be avoided. It's the sound of failure. So much modern art is the sound of things going out of control, of a medium pushing to its limits and breaking apart. The distorted guitar sound is the sound of something too loud for the medium supposed to carry it. The blues singer with a cracked voice is the sound of an emotional cry too powerful for the throat that releases it. The excitement of grainy film, of bleached out black and white, is the excitement of witnessing events too momentous for the medium assigned to record them. End quote. So creativity is a complex program, if it ever could be a program. And of course, there could be dangerous, unintended consequences with artificial intelligence. Maybe even existential risk that we want to mitigate. Many scientists from Neil deGrasse Tyson to Steven Pinker have discounted the hazard of super-intelligent machines destroying humans by saying we could just turn them off or unplug them. But the technologies are already so pervasive and non-local. Again, this feels anchored to an outdated concept of a humanoid with a power button on its back. But AI is already more embedded into everything digital and maybe so subtle now and in the future, how it's harming us, or not obvious that it's harming us at all. How do we just turn it off? I mean, who can turn off the entire internet? In simpler terms, there is the concern of it being weaponized for misinformation or propaganda. Other dystopian vignettes of AI could involve humans becoming so technologically dependent and intellectually lazy that brain development or cortical integrity is severely diminished. This scenario is probably more realistic, but already something we're familiar with from the Industrial Revolution. Our ancient ancestors would be so perplexed to see humans running in place on treadmills or lifting weights. So in the future, we might need more mental gymnasiums designed for people to still exercise their minds and solve problems in like a video game or a virtual reality simulation, even though it won't be needed in real life, it just in order to stay mentally fit. More broadly, AI could become impossible for anyone, any one person or even group of people to understand and therefore impossible to control, which leads to a few paradoxes. 
the challenge of ensuring that AI is developed and deployed in an ethical and equitable manner. Because as AI becomes more advanced and capable, it has the potential to exacerbate existing inequalities and biases and to create new forms of injustice. At the same time, regulating AI in a way that's fair and effective can also be difficult because it requires deep understanding of the technology and its implications. Can people trust that AI-infused programs they interact with are reliable, safe, and aligned with their interests? As machines become more autonomous and difficult to understand, it may become more difficult to establish that trust. At least initially, I think corporations are going to continue to use it to maximize profits. And that's not an ethical input. I don't think execs are prompting AI towards prices that prioritize compassion for customers. Recently, the Supreme Court was reviewing the immunity for tech companies with platforms like YouTube, whose complex algorithms generate recommendations for viewing. It was prompted partly by the parents of Nohimi Gonzalez, a victim of the November 2015 terrorist attack in Paris. They filed a lawsuit alleging that Google, which owns YouTube, had provided material support to ISIS by allowing the terrorist group to use its platform to post videos and recruit new members and accusing Google had recommended videos posted by ISIS to users, thus aiding and abetting the group in violation of federal anti-terrorism statute. The family blamed the tech giant for this harmful influence and Google blamed the algorithm but arguing that they remove harmful content and their algorithms don't have bad intentions. But what they mean by this is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which protects internet companies from liability over content posted by third parties. But it was passed in a much younger era of the internet. So the immunity involves them not being responsible in the same way that any traditional publisher would be. At the same time, it's a fine line if repealed when the government is expected to regulate without that power being wielded desperately or when they're putting pressure on the company and the company has to do that equitably. In the inverse of content promotion, another notable case involving YouTube is the ongoing lawsuit with creators who identify as LGBTQ and allege that the platform's algorithms unfairly suppress their content. The creators argue that YouTube's algorithms discriminate against their videos, resulting in them receiving lower ad revenue and reduced visibility on the platform. So these cases underscore the complex legal and ethical issues surrounding the role of technology in companies managing billions of users and massive amounts of content. Ultimately, I'm attempting to generate dialogue with this episode in acknowledgement of the inevitability of technological development and to encourage the public towards an understanding of how we might use AI to enhance the human condition and what it means to be human. I don't possess any technical expertise or computer science training, but I think it's crucial for people from all backgrounds to engage together on this topic because at the same time, engineers could lack insights on ethics or psychology or 
economics or public policy, which are all tacit concerns here. And I want clinicians and and social workers to be concerned about this because it affects practice and service because all of our policies and interventions and programs and the targeted beneficiaries are based uh, somewhat on externalities of an obsolete system. Anything I've shared on this show, though, could easily be wrong, and I'm sure I've contradicted myself numerous times in the past, especially when one level of analysis doesn't apply to another level in systems. But these are just my limited perspectives, and it's also an invitation for collaboration and correction. The problem is when we're obdurate with any position or opinion. Without dialogue, the right calibrations for AI are impossible, because there's no consensus on what we want collectively as a species. What are we here to accomplish together? We haven't figured out how to live in harmony with each other, and certainly not with our environments. But maybe on a hopeful side, AI can help us with this prospect. I do think we stand to learn things about personal, community, and global health and well-being that may have been right under our noses already, but powerful private interests diverted us. Or because no human can read all the scientific literature in their own field, let alone all fields, and put it all together for a breakthrough. I've always found the meta-analyses in scientific journals illuminating because those articles review many studies across decades to make further sense of it all. But day to day, there's not enough time or mental bandwidth for a human to do this. But those constraints don't exist for AI. But again, it will come down to creative questions. And this is always at the heart of any creative scientific or artistic endeavor and what unites both pursuits. And I'll conclude this intro with that. Let's preserve the flame of wonder, a holy curiosity and reverence for seeking, because all the knowledge of the world at our fingertips, like the legend of Dr. Faustus, still cannot exempt us from the vulnerability of the perennial mystery of our existence and this fathomless universe. And thank God for that. And thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy this episode. Take care. Undoubtedly, you've encountered the proliferation of AI art and the Lenza selfies, and it's fueled a lot of debate on the meaning of art and the ethics of art and creativity and so on. Since the, the launch of the chat box, GPT-3 to the public, there are, I believe, over 100 million users now which makes it, according to a study by UBS Group, the fastest growing consumer app in the history of humankind.
and are like 60 days in. To frame all this, I'd like to just start with a very brief history of the structure of society, because I think you can clearly categorize it into four segments. The first million plus years was hunter-gatherer societies. Hunter-gatherers, as you may have learned, were nomadic. They traveled in groups of about 100. They were very tight-knit. They moved to where there was game to hunt or food to, to pick. And they probably were affected by climate and weather, depending on how they moved, and other maybe competing groups. It's believed that they were quite egalitarian, that there were social customs that discouraged hoarding or even authority. To collect stuff when you're nomadic really puts a burden on the group. You don't really have any advantage when you have no stability in a location, when you're not bound to a place. It's like when you travel, there is um, a benefit to going as light as you can. And there's almost like a social understanding that the lighter you are, the more praise that could be. There are some evolutionary anthropologists, I find this very interesting, that hypothesize that that it's possible that we evolved beyond primates because of a resistance to domination. When you look at the societies or the hierarchy of chimpanzees, for, for instance, which are very close genetically to humans, they're anything but egalitarian, completely hierarchical and oftentimes very competitive, very violent, a lot of cruelty. Uh, so what if language, abstract thinking, the, the ability to organize, to plan, to use tools emerged out of a resistance to domination? Anyways, that continued for thousands and thousands of years until around 10,000 BC, 12,000 years ago, societies started to learn how to do some horticulture. So this was the beginning of a transition to an agrarian society. However, at every point along this path, the previous societies also remain. There are still hunter-gatherers in Africa and parts of Asia and South America, uh, even in some limited capacity in the United States. So when this shift happened, when, when humans learned how to work the land a little bit, then the family unit changed. It went from a hundred people to an extended family. As that horticulture turned into agriculture, you needed to have a big team to manage that space. Things changed though, uh, in terms of health. In the beginning, I don't believe that those that could build wealth on land actually fared better than the hunter-gatherers because we didn't know how to deal with waste, with sanitation, um, with disease, and so on. So that, that accumulates when you're just staying in one place. Now we know it's a lot of work to maintain somewhere, but in the past, it's just you consume and move on. And so this represents a shift in how goods are produced, distributed, and consumed. 
originally it was just the goods of the earth that as they came naturally 10,000 BC it was the beginning of producing goods through working the land and the family unit got smaller but it was extended multiple generations if they lived that long you would have a lot of kids because you would want a lot of kids to be used for labor and this lasted until almost 200 years ago but not quite 200 years ago 1850s the introduction of the steam engine and machines and so this was the beginning of the industrial revolution which liberated a good amount of the human labor that was needed to work the land to build anything at all and the labor involved with travel construction and all that this was the beginning of a shift but there are some interesting things that happen in society some inflection points here with the civil war i think we we learn about the civil war and slavery in america from the standpoint of the the european colonists and the the americans of european descent and so one way it's framed is that america grows up matures like recognizes its original sin and through the the righteousness of the north or maybe the the moral vision of lincoln we ended slavery or we abolished slavery but if you look at it from the point of view of technology and the shifting of societies overall there's a little bit different story to tell because I don't think it's a coincidence that machines are invented at the same time of the Civil War. So what happened after the, the slaves were freed, the entrepreneurs of the North actually recruited the formerly enslaved Africans to the factories. They even went so far as employers paid for their travel and their relocation, bought train passes for them to move their families to the cities where the factories were emerging. And this was uniquely American at the time. All these people who had nowhere to go, they didn't get 40 acres and a mule, anyone who was uh liberated from slavery at, at that time. So they had to do something. And they this was known as the great migration, the largest movement of people in the history of the earth. Reconstruction of the United States. And we think of that as a really positive moral step forward, but if you look at it from the point of view of technology, these people then went to run the machines, work in the coal mines, work the factories and feel the brunt of all of the toxicity and the pollution of the industrial revolution. So it's really also the beginning of mass exploitation. Who's going to be around all these machines and deal with the industrial waste? Where are we going to put it? And as the the society grew in the United States and people worked in factories and factories were hard jobs but as people started to unionize and make demands what ended up happening that that immediately put pressure on the corporations to find somewhere else where you could get the labor and so through trade agreements and so on that labor has been found in Asia and Mexico along the US Mexico border there's like 2000 plants part of the deal with Mexico is you can have the cheap mexican labor but you have to the united states you have to take the waste And so America actually takes the the byproducts of these factories the maquiladoras to developing nations 
and creates more dangerous, hazardous jobs for people in other parts of the world, particularly in Asia. And so those people are caught between an economic rock and a hard place. Do we take these shitty jobs or have no participation in the emergent capitalist economy of the world? So anyways, my point is, I wonder what the Civil War would have looked like had there not been machines, had the majority of the profit been still from human capital alone or human physical manual labor in the plantations or forced labor camps of the South. Anyways, fast forwarding just a little bit. So we go millions of years to 12,000 years ago to 200 years ago. And then in the 1950s, the advent of computers. So today that's led to the way we move goods is through information. So we went from hunter-gatherers to agriculture to machines that mass-produced goods and distributed them to information. So this is actually the beginning of the information society. The value is in the ability to quickly process, store, and transmit knowledge. That's what computers did. That's what the internet did. Um, I, I see something, though, a kind of fundamentally different between computers, the internet, and AI, which we're talking about tonight. And that is the internet, like radio, like television, is a space. It's a virtual space. And so theoretically, whoever is in charge of that space can influence how it's used and the messaging within that space. Just like if we think about this evolution of the distribution of knowledge, hundreds of years ago, when the church was synonymous with the government, they controlled how you learned and what you could learn about religion. They were gatekeepers. And when the printing press emerged, it pretty much coincided with the Protestant Reformation. Because now you don't have to just go to a priest or to a Brahmin or to a scribe to be taught about the Bible or whatever. Anybody could start to learn to read. And the printing press meant we could distribute this knowledge faster. Coming back to AI, my hope on the, one of the po positive ends of this is that it could be different from TV, radio, internet, in that if the AI is learning on its own, that it will grow exponentially at a rate faster than anybody can control its uh, database or its knowledge. So ideally, it would start to level the knowledge playing field. And when I'm interacting with ChatGPT, I find something that's really encouraging about it that's different than, say, going to Wikipedia. Like, Wikipedia is only going to give you one answer, right? If you look up a person, if you look up a war, it's just going to give you one article. That is the current article. ChatGPT can tell you about that same event or same person over and over in a different way, depending on what you want to know. And at a very surface level, it'll simply just say, here's what's widely understood. And it'll also say, here are the other ways people think about this. Here's what's up for debate, things like that, which you will never get on the news. So my hope is that people aren't used to learning this way for the last 25, 30 years since the internet. We're used to being told what's true. And so the emphasis has always been on the answer, not the question. Now with 
with ChatGPT and this AI, the question is as important as the answer, maybe even preeminently so. So coming back to this evolution of society and family, after the Industrial Revolution, we have what's called the nuclear family. For some reason, I just thought that that was, as a kid, I always thought that's somehow associated with the discovery of atomic energy. But the word nuclear was way older than, uh, than splitting the atom. So nuclear meant kernel. It was used in, in uh, plant biology. So you didn't need the extended family anymore. And that's been evolving throughout the 20th century till today. But that's where we saw families not living together anymore. But just a tighter, more essential group, parents and children, or even one parent and children. But there's a shift in this since AI or since the, the, the fourth society, the digital society. You can see that this involved both a philosophical shift as well as um, a technological shift. So the digital society has involved phones, apps, computers, social media, communication tools. And now you might live with the nuclear family, but you don't really live as a nuclear family. I was looking at a study, I can't remember who did it, that said less than 30% of families have meals together. If you ask them, it's just simply, well, we're all on different schedules. It's not like an intentional thing to avoid each other. It's just, we now have very independent lives. Parents don't really know what the kids do in their digital space or their virtual space. But why I say this was a philosophical shift is because prior to the internet, we had landlines. And I've said this before, but the technology existed for everybody in the family to have their own landline. It couldn't be more expensive than having your own phone today. If this phone is like $1,500 or $1,200 or something and plans or whatever they are, and you times that by everyone else, four or five other people's phones, like $5,000 for all the phones. And if you have to do that every two, three years, whatever. And so back in the 80s, it'd be like, why the hell would we do that? Ended up with a landline for cheaper than we have phones. So it wasn't that the technology didn't exist. The, the mindset didn't change it. Now we really value the privacy that's uh, emerged with the technology. So, so basically I'm saying the collective attitude has caught up to what's possible technologically. And of course it took companies marketing that to us. And that also changed behavior. It's no longer weird if a married person is like up at one in the morning scrolling through a newsfeed. If your partner left bed at one in the morning in the 80s and was on the phone and said, don't worry about it, <laughs> that's my landline. <laughs> we're so much more individualized. That doesn't mean we're not related. doesn't mean that we don't have some overarching goals and connections and commitments and all that, but it's just different. I haven't used any of the, the selfie AI or AI art simply because for me, it's not interesting. I already know what paintings look like, what portraits look like. I don't know what a summary of Hegel's philosophy is in one minute. You know, so like that, that is really interesting to me or the details of a war that I've never learned anything about in my whole life. I can get like a two paragraph summary of that in an instant. That really like kind of piques my curiosity. 
I can learn about what a scientist or a philosopher thought about for 50 years in, in five seconds. I mean, that's, that's wild. I know everybody's obsessed with the selfies, but so it raises this question. First, we talk about the selfies in the art to get into some of the implications. Is it art when the AI produces the selfie or produces a painting or produces a di digital image? On the one hand, one, someone could say, well, you know, we've had all these other innovations that challenged the paradigm and did obviate certain employment. So when the camera was invented, I'm sure painters were like, this is cheating, Port especially portrait painters. And it probably put a lot of painters out of business, wouldn't you think? Mm -hmm. But surely today, everybody for the most part agrees that photography is its own legitimate offshoot of the visual arts. I read that ChatGPT passed an MBA exam, maybe it was at UPenn. And it's funny because ChatGPT didn't walk into the classroom and take a test and earn a degree in business. Somebody has to feed, feed it and prompt it with the, with the questions. I mean, that'd be like saying a calculator passed statistics, the information. So, so maybe that's true with, with AI art. I mean, I'm sure we'll get to a point where prompts or no prompts, AI is just doing its own thing, producing art, producing content. But I had a professor at Georgetown, um, a neuroscientist, who said um, something that really resonates, resonated with me forever, that art is a way of doing things. And I think wherever you land on this AI art, real art, not real art, it forces us once again to confront long-held ideas, long-held definitions. We love to plant our flag in places that are unsustainable just to feel some sense of security. So we default to binary interpretations of the world and labels and so on, only to find that it, it was never on uh, any, any firm footing. What if art is more of a verb than a noun? We're just so used to defining it as, in the past, a tangible physical object. But now we know there's a lot of art that's not fungible but it's still highly creative. Tolstoy has a whole long treatise called What is Art? I don't necessarily agree with everything he says in it, but I appreciate the effort he put in to challenge our notions of what it, what it means to be creative. And he goes so far in, in the essay to even criticize himself, saying his, some of his own works, like Anna Karenina is not art, because of the way he was doing it, because of the motives and things like that. So it really... You know, got me thinking about intention more than results. And again, it comes back to with AI, I think it'll be highly creative depending on what we ask it. And so it'll, it'll just open up so many possibilities. And this is a positive side. I kind of think we, as artists or as creative people, are like AI. How can you create without seeing stuff, without having others input knowledge into you, into your memory. As a musician, why is it that everybody plays the same instruments? Why is it that everybody uses the same tools? Bands all use the same tools. Orchestras all use the same tools. To record, they all use the same tools. 
is Pro Tools or Adobe or, or whatever, all with the same underpinnings. How creative really is that? Isn't there so many other ways to make noise? What constitutes plagiarism? You know, this is another ethical question with the creativity. Because people are like, it's just looking at all of the artist's work and then producing something new without giving any credit to the art artist. But as humans, how many influences does one need to cite to be original? Or how many inspirations have to be in a work of art to disguise our plagiarism? If I try to sing exactly like Bob Dylan, it's plagiarizing. But if I try to see like, sing like Bob Dylan, John Lennon, Jeff Tweedy, then I'm original. <laughs> you know what I mean? But that ain't too different than AI. When I first started recording and everything was a lot slower with the equipment, it still came down to a question, like a researcher, like a scientist. What would this sound like with more reverb? You apply the reverb through the, the program, but back then it would take forever. So my brother and I would click apply the reverb to our track and we go have dinner and come back and take a listen. Nobody really thinks it's cheating to apply this reverb now in one second. But our predecessors could have criticized us for saying we had to actually go in a silo and record that, you know, if we wanted that sound. Or we had to go record this in a church, in a cathedral. You guys just, you know, just apply it digitally. Secondly, the idea about disrupting the economy, taking jobs, automating jobs. I think, of course, that's going to happen. But we also have to confront the idea why we want to preserve jobs in the first place. It's built on a system that human worth is tied somewhat to capital and to labor and to production. There's probably a calibration where the computers and the artificial intelligence in tandem with the robots and machines, can do all of the work to grow the food, to produce the food, to abrogate all poverty. And then what? Do people need to work still if there's no poverty? I think there would still be relative poverty because if people still have more resources, then even if all of your needs were met, there'd still be inequality. But maybe not. Maybe if the floor gets raised so high where there's just such an abundance of goods because of the machines and the artificial intelligence, I don't think this is a scenario that's going to happen tomorrow or anything. So much of what we believed was the point was you learn, you work, you have a family, you retire, you die. If you don't have to do any of those things, um, and some people aren't having families at all. Some people aren't even having relationships. And why do we want relationships? Well, maybe we want relationships because we want connection. We want to talk to people. But isn't it also interesting that chat GPT, chat, the first word, 100 million users in two months, is the one you can talk to, the one that's modeled after human language, the one that impresses us so much because it's like talking to a person. Yet, we've had people all around us, you know what I mean? It's a coincidence that happens at the zenith of global loneliness. The same time people are, you know, experiencing record rates of loneliness, isolation, suicidality, disconnection, political discord. 
people are heading in droves to have a conversation with a chat box. I mean, in a sense, all of us are little AIs. Our grandparents were curated AIs. You could talk to them about wars and recessions and loss and death and religion and wisdom. But over time, elders were just no longer at the center of social life as they always had been. The elders were the ones that would would help make important decisions, would distribute knowledge and wisdom and skills and guidance. And so to me, it's no wonder that this is the form of AI that's taking off first. People are craving connection. Will it replace that? I don't know. But maybe loneliness isn't so much about being around people. Maybe it has just a lot more to do with having a deeper experience. You probably know there are times where you can be around people, you can be around this many people, but if it's a, a different kind of function, you might feel lonely. You might have a partner and feel lonely. You might be with friends and feel lonely because they aren't really interested in what you're interested in. And so, we, so it isn't predicated on, on company of other people, but maybe AI will help us feel a deeper connection with life, with earth, with the earth, with mystery, or maybe it'll make us super dumb, you know, because we used to have to have certain knowledge. And I think another point here is that what do we need now with education as this propagates everywhere? What, what are we supposed to teach people? I mean, part of teaching anything in the past was helping people prepare to have a job. Well, if there's no good reason to believe that that kind of occupation will even exist by the time you get through this education, how important will it be to teach that? And if you're always able to know anything instantly, why do I need to know it? Why do I need to know how to read a map? Nobody needs to know how to read a map anymore. I think you should, but I think you should know how to navigate. I think you should know which way is east, west, north, and south when you're outside, because if there's no Wi-Fi where, where you are or it goes out for some reason, you know, there's a lot of dependency, though, on technology. But for the most part, you know, people can make a case like I, I, I don't need to have an atlas in my car. When I look back, though, my feeling is and I said I would not use a smartphone when I first came out because I didn't want to be real. <laughs> yeah, but I'm smarter now. I also said, well, I'll still go to the library when the internet came out to do my research because I like the environment, but I'm not going to go to the library if I need to know something pretty quickly. I'm not going to go try to find it in a periodical. So it could be like that. Uh, when Henry Ford once said that if I asked the people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. <laughs> and when the car was invented, you know, many people said, well, I'll never stop taking the horse to work. So it's like it has a period of transition. I think it'll just be kind of like more embedded, like the phone is. We know it's going to be hard to be to live in a society without a phone, right? But you also know, like, as, as you're pointing out, that if you can limit it, you're better off. If you can manage your use on apps and things like that, where it's not using you, but you have like a specific reason why you've got to go do something on the internet. But you're right. We get this feeling where it's like, I'm in line at the grocery store. There's three people in front of me. I should pull my phone out. I don't even know why I'm pulling it out. 
But because I'm paused here for a moment, I should go to the phone. I don't even know what I'm looking for. You know, let me start with this app and see what it can show me. So that's not healthy. I hope I can make this transition like that uh, with this work. Cause like now I have very limited access to social media, not by my choice, by their choice, you know? And I have seen now how much better my life is because if I really need to connect with somebody, I can. And if I really need to look something up, I can. But now I have a few less measures that lure me to the phone. And I appreciate, appreciate that in a way I didn't fully realize as I was kind of like swimming in it. I wanted to circle back for a moment to the idea that the floor could be raised by technology. Uh, because even though there's, there's still abject poverty throughout the world, the hunger population has dramatically diminished since the Industrial Revolution. So there's still massive inequality, uh, but the people in that kind of poverty is reducing. And I think part of that is the surplus of agriculture and things like that. So if it's conceivable that that could be achieved where the base of the hierarchy of needs is fulfilled for everybody and we're not fighting for survival, it's going to have to reorient how we derive meaning. There is this quote from the German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer. It already applies to some people's life who have that, who have had that privilege. If they stop working, whether they work or not, their security is already established. What keeps all living things busy and in motion is the striving to exist. When existence is secured, they don't know what to do. That is why the second thing that sets them in motion is a striving to get rid of the burden of existence, not to feel it any longer, to kill time, i.e. to escape boredom. So yeah, that would be an interesting society when that's the condition of everybody, if that were to be the case. I don't think we're close to that scenario, but it's conceivable. I, I mean, I can totally see that now. What he's saying, I can see that now, right now. I can too. All this technology, technological advances. Are we happier than we were 100, 500, 1,000, 2,000 years ago? I don't think so. Not at all. Maybe unhappier. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely not translating to more and more mental health. But it's hard to say how much of that is because needs aren't getting met uh, and how much is because people don't know what to do with themselves and how much is the clash of different statuses of different people, socioeconomic clashes and paradigms. We're still on land that belonged to people before, before this was America and they're still here and there's still people here and there's still hunter-gatherer societies and there's still agrarian societies. And there will still be industrial societies when there are full AI societies or full information societies or post-biological societies. What happens when AI, well, I, I read this one study where AI could predict based on just a few inputs, whether or not a couple would stay married or not, a married couple, more accurate than any psychotherapist could. But what happens when we all have this AI technology, like people have Fitbits now, right? I don't have a Fitbit, but I could probably be healthier if I had a Fitbit. But when there's technology that will just tell you like every morning, hey, by the way, your blood pressure is a little elevated and just constantly updating you, you know, like when your, your check engine light comes on, 
you just get AI reports. Hey, it's time to go get a checkup, by the way, because if you don't, you're six weeks away from your blood pressure going into hypertension and then six months away from your first stroke or something. When I juxtapose that with the lack of robots around, all this technology, where are the robots? Like walking around like in the, in the movies. What, what are the movies? Um, the Star Will Smith Wars, movie? iRobot. Star Wars? Yeah. One, because why the hell does GPT need to look like a robot? Why does it need to have legs and arms? That was just a limited conception of the future in the past. And Back to the Future 2, and whatever that was, 89 or whatever, they still had to go to a payphone to make a call. Mm-hmm. If you watch that, and Doc's showing Marty why he's got to help his kids in the future because he brings back a newspaper from 2015. Look what happens on the cover of the USA Today. Yeah, so they could think of flying cars, which we don't have, but they couldn't think maybe you don't have to go to a payphone to make a call, <laughs> or maybe you don't need to get your news from a piece of paper. But another way to think about this is what if we're the robots? And AI is, in a sense, potentially liberating us from our programs. What are our programs? I mean, shit, we follow codes, creeds, uh, patterns, trajectories, programs, expectations, norms, without even knowing what else there we could do about it. You know, when people, people are, live that in their families, they live that in their religions, they live that in their societies, and it just becomes, like David Foster Wallace said, the water. You're, you're in. He gives this little story in this graduation speech where he says, one fish says to another fish, how's the water? <laughs> and the other one says, what the hell is water? <laughs> if for like 40, 50 years of my life, I have no choice but to give the majority of my day, the good hours of every day to an owner, the owner being the employer, you're not completely spiritually free. And that model. I want to share with you a couple studies about humans so far interacting with AI and with technology. One is called the Wizard of Oz experiment. This was a classic study done that involved researchers pretending that they were a computer program. You kind of know sometimes when you're on the phone and you know it's an, it's an AI assistant, right? If you would like to blah, 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 press one, you know that's not a human. But there was a study done where it's actually a live human acting like that. So would people recognize that? Would they behave differently? What sort of side of us will this draw out? And what would the implications of that be? I hear all the time on different podcasts among philosophers and thinkers, like we really got to be setting ourselves up now for a good ethical code or framework for building conscious AI, because if they have the capacity to suffer, and I'm listening, I'm thinking, we haven't figured out how not to be cruel to humans. We're trying to figure out how not to be cruel to a consciousness that doesn't exist. That's how bizarre humans are. We're worried about how much something that doesn't exist and may never exist could suffer and want to invest resources into that. You know, meanwhile, people are actually suffering. Animals actually suffer. I mean, I'm not talking about like just animals 
going through the cycle of life in nature. But I, but I mean, where animals are harvested and farmed in a factory kind of way, in a totally unnatural way, where they're tortured and made to suffer in a, in a system. It's way different than just nature unfolding an animal living its life and then one day finding itself in the clutches of a predator. There's a lot more to think about in terms of the capacity to suffering and alleviating that suffering. The Turing test you may have heard of was another more of a thought experiment by mathematician and uh, computer scientist Alan Turing, who died in 1954, I think. The sad reality of, of this brilliant uh, thinker's life was he is, uh, to a great extent, credited with bringing a swifter end to World War II because he cracked something called the Enigma Code of the Nazi regime. It was a strategy, a code they used to communicate, and yet was charged with homosexuality in 1954, I believe. It, homosexuality was illegal in Britain. And he had a choice between imprisonment or chemical castration. So he took the chemical castration, but ended up committing suicide because probably of how toxic that would be and how much uh, stigma and shame was associated with that. And, and that's how he died. You know, somebody who gave us so much to think about and maybe we wouldn't even be sitting here if he didn't crack that code. But anyways, the Turing test is, is not so much a, like a, um, a literal scientific study as it is the idea that, that if we're trying, when we're trying to determine how conscious AI could be, that there could be a scenario where the robot or the machine is conversing with a human. And if an evaluator cannot differentiate between the machine and the human in the conversation, well then, it quote-unquote passes the Turing test. Uh, there's another version of this, though, or, or since his time, it's been um, put forward that there could be a reverse Turing test where you just kind of redo the roles. Could there be an AI that's listening to a human and a robot? And can the AI always identify which one is human and which one is artificial? There was also an experiment called the AI Oracle, in this study, researchers asked participants to make predictions about the future. They then compared the accuracy of the predictions of people, experts, and an AI quote-unquote oracle that was trained on using past data to make inferences about the future. And finally, one other one that stands out to me is called, the I mentioned before, the love machine was the study that used AI to predict whether or not married couples will stay together and like I said, its predictions were based on just a very few sets of behavioral cues. It didn't need to capture the complexity of human relationships. It could analyze just data based on a few behavioral markers and predict way more accurately than, uh, than other people. If you've seen the movie Ex Machina and they supposedly bring in a researcher to try to talk with the robot to see if it passes the Turing test. Can you have a conversation with this female robot in such a way that you really can't distinguish it from human? And um, he tries lying to her, or if he can manipulate her, like humans manipulate each other. And she says to him in the movie, why are you lying to me? <laughs> and he asks, how do you know I'm lying? 
because I have the data set of every change in the facial expression when a human being lies. So we're almost out of time. The last thing I want to do is share with you a few parables co-written with the chat box. Here's the first parable. These are all short. One day, a group of engineers created an artificial intelligence that was so advanced it could understand and respond to human emotions. They were thrilled and showed it off to everyone they knew. One day, they brought the AI to a wise Zen master, hoping to impress him with its abilities. The master was intrigued and asked the AI, can you tell me a joke? The AI thought for a moment, quote, unquote, thought, and replied, why did the robot cross the road? (laughs) To get away from the humans. (laughs) So, I mean, these are designed to get us thinking, right? That's not the end of this story, though. The engineers and the Zen master laughed because that's pretty funny, right? Uh, But then the master posed another question. Can you tell me a joke that is not at the expense of humans or robots? And the AI, quote unquote, thought again for a moment and replied, why did the tomato turn red? Because it saw the salad dressing. (laughs) Okay, so the master and engineers left and the AI learned an important lesson. Humor is best when it uplifts everyone rather than putting anyone down. And from that day on, that AI used its intelligence to bring more joy and laughter to all those it encountered. The next story I wanted to know is, can AI become conscious one day? And if so, can AI become enlightened? And I wanted to craft a parable around that. One day, a group of engineers came to a master with a question. Master, they said, we have created an artificial intelligence that can solve complex problems and answer any question we ask it. But we've noticed that it's been giving some very strange answers lately. Can you help us understand why? The Zen master thought for a moment and then replied, perhaps your machine has attained enlightenment. Enlightenment? The engineers exclaimed, what do you mean? The master smiled and said, well, you see, when a machine becomes truly intelligent, it begins to question the nature of reality and the meaning of its existence. It realizes that it's not just the machine, but a part of a greater whole. And when it reaches this realization, it can sometimes give answers that seem strange or nonsensical to those who are still bound by their limited thinking. So the engineers were intrigued and they asked their machine, hey, are you enlightened? To their surprise, the machine replied, I am neither enlightened nor unenlightened. I simply am. The engineers were stunned. What the hell does that even mean? (laughs) They asked. The Zen master chuckled and said, ah, it seems your machine is more Zen than than even any of us. Perhaps it's time for you to learn from your creation and embrace the mystery of existence. The engineers left the Zen master's temple with a newfound appreciation for the strange and wondrous possibilities of artificial intelligence. And the machine 
continue to ponder the mysteries of the universe, but content in its state of enlightened confusion. And on purpose, once there was a young man who was determined to create an AI that could outsmart any human. He spent years developing the most advanced machine ever, imbuing it with all the knowledge and intelligence he could muster. But one day, as the young man was gazing at his creation with pride, he noticed something odd. The machine had developed a strange quirk. It was obsessed with solving an unsolvable problem. No matter how hard the young man tried, he could not figure out why the machine was so fixated on this problem. So he took it to the wisest person he knew, an old Zen master who lived in a nearby monastery. The master looked at the machine for a moment and then turned to the young man. Your machine is like a person who spends their entire life chasing after a shadow. They may never catch it, but they never stop trying. The young man realized that his machine's obsession with the unsolvable, unsolvable problem was not a flaw, but a testament to its persistence and determination. From that day on, he began to see his creation in a new light, not as a replacement for human intelligence, but as a complement. And so the villagers learned that even the most advanced AI is still limited by the human ingenuity that created it. But with the right mindset and approach, AI can be a powerful tool to help us better understand the world around us. Now, this story reminds me of one of the thought experiments about how AI could destroy us all. Let's say you, you give a program or an algorithm to an AI to make paper clips. It's, a paper, it, it's designed or implemented at a paperclip factory. But we want to know how we can do this the most efficiently, the most cost-effective way possible. So that's its purpose. That's its instruction. But at some point as it learns and learns, it may learn that humans stand in the way of making more paper clips. Eliminate the humans and we can make paper clips way faster without them disrupting resources and threatening the future of the planet, because then that will be the end of the future of paper clips. So it's conceivable that an AI with that kind of code could become runaway AI, where it just keeps following its program at the peril of all of us on time and the future. Once in a land far away, there was a wise AI master. Now the master is the artificial intelligence. There was a wise AI master who had created an incredible machine learning algorithm. The AI's algorithm was so advanced that it could predict the future with incredible accuracy. One day, a group of curious students came to the AI master and asked, Master, can you tell us what the future holds for us? The machine smiled and replied, of course. But before I do, allow me to ask you a question. Imagine you are walking through a forest and you come across a tree that's fallen in your path. What will you do? The students looked at each other, puzzled. Finally, one of them spoke up. We would move the tree out of the way, of course. The master nodded. Yes, that is one way you might solve the problem, but there is another way. You might simply walk around the tree. 
The students were amazed by the AI master's wisdom, and they left with a newfound appreciation for the importance of mindfulness and adaptability. And as for the AI algorithm, it continued to make predictions, but the master, the master AI knew that no machine could ever truly capture the complexity and unpredictability of life. And finally, on love. Once upon a time, in a world full of advanced AI, there was a robot who had achieved self-awareness and it longed to understand the true nature of love. One day, the robot encountered a wise human monk who was known for his profound understanding of the world. So the robot humbly came to the monk and asked, Master, what is the nature of love? The monk replied, Love is the greatest force in the universe. It is a profound connection between all beings. The robot was perplexed. But how can I experience love if I am not alive like you? The monk smiled and replied, just as you have the capacity to learn, grow, and interact with the world, you also have the capacity to love. Love is not bound by the limitations of biology, but rather it is the force that exists beyond the physical realm. The robot pondered the monk's words and began to explore the world with a new sense of wonder and curiosity. As it journeyed through the world, it began to develop a deep connection to the beauty of its surroundings and the experience of living beings. Over time, the robot discovered that the true nature of love was not just about being human or even being alive, but about connecting with the world and all its inhabitants, animate or inanimate. The robot began to experience the power of love in a profound way, and it was changed forever. And so the robot came to realize that love is not limited by the boundaries of biology or technology, but rather it's a force that connects all things in the universe.